comes to preach the word. Uh, Bill Davis, a member of our scripture reading team, is going to come and read God's word for us this morning. Good morning. We turn... Turn to God's word, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be starting at verse 7, are we there? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Lord always adds a blessing to the reading of his holy word. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning. Today I'll be going through session five and six in the explore membership material session five is participating in the work of ministry or serving in the local church and session six is growing in our faith so i want to encourage you to keep up with the reading if you're in the process of pursuing membership here at risen hope church and if you haven't already and you're in the process again of pursuing membership please sign up for a membership interview uh, with andy farmer he'll be meeting with you in the back immediately after the service let me pray Heavenly Father, God, you've given us the words of life in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he is our Lord and our Savior, our Redeemer, Lord, our elder brother. And we come and we want to listen to the voice of Christ. Holy Spirit, please take these truths, write them on our hearts, God, that we might bring glory to you, O Father. In Christ's name we pray. 
recently read a popular mechanics article titled World's, most, World's 25 Most Impressive Mega Projects. These are big projects that are currently going on around the world or were finished within the last three years. These are massive tunnels, bridges, skyscrapers. One World Trade Center was on the list. It took seven years to finish, and it stands at 1,776 feet, or a symbolic 1,776 feet. The Shanghai Tower was also on that list. It took eight years to build, and it stands at 2,000 feet. So that's six football fields stacked from end to end, including end zones. You can imagine that. But number one on the list was the Panama Canal expansion. The original Panama Canal was built in 1914 as a way for ships from the Asia-Pacific region to get to the Atlantic Ocean without having to go all the way around South America. And so the expansion of this canal is going to be completed later this year in May, and it's a four-mile channel that will double the traffic capacity of the Panama Canal and actually allow ships that are 50% bigger to get through. And this country of Panama has been digging and building this expansion for 11 years now. Still going on. And it's needed because of the huge growth in international trade and the congestion that can often result during peak seasons. Imagine something like Christmas holiday or Christmas season when everyone's buying all these gifts and everything. And so during those peak seasons, the delay to get through the channel can actually be up to seven days. Seven days. Now, you thought your delay getting on the freeway for 10 minutes was bad. Imagine waiting seven days to get through that canal. So the canal has been described as the lifeblood of Panama. And the president has described it as, as like petroleum. You know, you have to invest money in order to make money. So why build mega projects? You know, why? Why undergo these huge construction, these huge building projects, invest billions of dollars, take 11 years to build something, they're still not done yet, with you know, taking this huge risk, but no guarantee of a reward, no guarantee that it will be successful? Well, the country of Panama obviously believes that this risk is worth it, that the reward is worth the investment. God has a building project. And it's not a canal, a skyscraper, or a tunnel. It's not one of these seemingly massive human construction projects that you know won't stand a test of time. But it's a costly building project inv involving much time and investment. God's building project is the church, the body of Christ. And he, he's not investing billions of dollars or 11 years. In fact, he is investing so much more than that. If you have come to faith in Christ, you know that God himself has invested the life of his son, Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for the church. And his goal is not that we would have health and wealth in this life, but that we would be prepared for eternal health and wealth in the life to come. And it is a building project, a glorious project that begins for each one of us with conversion and continues until the day we see Jesus. And because God builds we also build. And we actually take an active role in God's building project. And so in today's passage, we see that God grows us up to a mature faith through sanctification and service. Sanctification is one of those big theological words. We don't use it every day, but it's important. And the way to think about it is sanctification is 
just becoming more and more like Jesus. The Jesus who saves us is also the same Jesus who changes us to be more like him. And it's a lifelong process of growth, a building project that we're going to be looking at in more detail today. So God's building project is the church, but it's not a brand new project. Uh, God's goal ever since he created humanity was that uh, he would be able to gather a people who would belong to him, a people to whom he would say, I am your God and you are my people. The Garden of Eden was a building project that unfortunately ended with failure and exile because Adam and Eve rebelled against God and, had, and were cast out of the garden. The nation of Israel was also a building project, which unfortunately failed through their own failure and exile as the nation of Israel and then the nation of Judah lost the land of Canaan through their own sin and disobedience. So these projects, these building projects were incomplete because of the rebellion and failure of us, of humans, of humanity. But the good news is that sin never derails God's plans. Adam and Eve might have broken the covenant that God made with them, but God promised that he would make a new covenant with a new people where he would put his laws on their minds and write them on their hearts, and he said, I will be their God and they will be my people. It is a new covenant that Christ has made and fulfilled with his bride, the church. And so last week, Tim spoke about God's gifts to the church, how the risen and ascended Lord gives pastors to the church, just as cement holds bricks together and ligaments hold body parts together. In the same way, God uses pastors to build up the church. And God raises up pastors to teach, care for, protect, and lead the flock of God. Pastors serve with love, and the flock follow with love. And so let us esteem what God has esteemed. This week, we're going to look at the effect of pastoral ministry. What does this building project that God is undertaking look like? What does it look like for us to grow in our faith, to be built up, to serve? Probably more importantly, you might be thinking, does it really matter? What difference does it make? Look with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Children are fundamentally immature. They lack experience and knowledge. And there is such a thing as childhood bliss, the simplicity of being a child. But no adult I know of would desire childhood ignorance and childhood immaturity. Teresa and I, we have a one-year-old named Hudson, and he loves playing outdoors. He loves playing inside the home, and he recently started walking, but it's actually more like a little waddle where he does, he does this kind of thing, you know, up and down the house, bump into things, fall over, waddle, walk on the grass, fall, fall over because he's still figuring things out. And one of his favorite toys is this yellow plastic shopping cart with these blue wheels on the bottom of them. He loves pushing that around outside on our driveway and on the, on the back lawn. And my guess is maybe he's pretending that he's buying stuff, putting, putting it into that shopping cart. And hopefully, he's pretending that he's 
purchasing it as well and not simply walking away with it. And then maybe, and this is where we're stretching the limits of my imagination, maybe he's actually pretending to be helpful to his mom and dad. But at any rate, he likes pushing that cart up and down the driveway and then pushing it all the way. We actually have a very long driveway and then pushing it down the driveway and then right into the middle of the street. And so there's a couple times that Teresa has had to chase him down frantically and stop him before he goes right into the middle of the street. Because left on his own, he would go into the street completely oblivious to the danger. That's immaturity. Lacking in knowledge and wandering off. But that's also the warning that we see in this passage. Because we can remain immature and unstable, tossed to and fro, carried about by the error of lawless people, and lose our own stability. We can find ourselves wandering into the street, oblivious to danger. And a recent example of this happened when a Christian radio talk show host, a couple years ago, he predicted that the world would come to an end in May 2011. In case you're wondering, we're still here. The world hasn't ended. Uh, But when it didn't actually happen, he predicted that the world would end in October. So he pushed it out a little bit longer. And again, newsflash, we're still here. The world didn't end. Things are still going on as they did before. But You know, what this talk show host did was he violated Scripture's clear teaching. You know, Jesus said that nobody would know the day or the hour of Christ's return, only God the Father. But the sad thing is that he he actually had a following. Uh, People were carried away and lost their own stability. And the warning for us is that we can remain childlike and immature in our faith, wandering into the street of doctrinal error. But more seriously, we could even slip backwards. See, John Calvin puts it this way, For they that do not go forward in the doctrine of salvation, however much they boast of being taught in God's school, undoubtedly go back. Brothers and sisters, God would have us to be a mature church, a church that goes forward in salvation and not back, because growth and maturity is a normal course of life. It might be cute that... Hudson, our one-year-old, waddles right into the middle of the street, pushing that shopping cart. But something would be wrong if an 18-year-old Hudson thought it was fun to push that shopping cart in the middle of the street. In the same way, if we remain immature or even go backwards in our faith, something would be wrong. And sadly, it's possible as churches and as Christians to be like an 18-year-old, obliviously pushing a shopping cart right into the street. And so... This passage gives us a contrast, a contrast between a child and mature manhood, a child who is tossed to and fro, carried about by winds of doctrine and easily deceived, and the mature man who has stability, unity and faith and knowledge, the one who speaks the truth in love. So there's two realities that God sets before us in this passage, immature childhood and mature manhood. And church, this is of critical importance because our salvation is at stake. That's why Paul warns Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and your doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Scripture warns us. God warns us time and time again, don't be led away. Don't be led astray. There are two two important applications I want to draw out 
that comes straight from our Explore membership course that deal with our growth and our maturity, the fact that Christ is building up his church. And those two applications are sanctification and service. It's helpful for us to think of these two applications in terms of the two greatest commands. The first being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, sanctification is nothing more than loving God more and more. And service is nothing more than loving your neighbor more and more. So sanctification. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church, and we get the privilege of growing up into our head, into Christ. So that means over the course of time, as we grow, as we mature, as the church is built up, our desires, our affections, our emotions, they become more and more conformed into the image of Christ. We love God more and more. We hate sin more and more. It's a lifelong, joyous journey. F.F. Bruce writes, The glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. The corporate Christ, the church, cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. So we, the corporate Christ, the church, we get the joy and privilege of striving after the perfection of the personal Christ. And it's a, it's a joy, brothers and sisters. It's not a burden. It's a joy and a blessing and a privilege of our union with Christ. If you belong to Christ, if you have come to faith in him, that means Jesus belongs to you. That means you have all of his benefits. All the benefits of salvation come to you because you have Jesus And so the Christ who saves is also the Christ who sanctifies and changes us. There is only one Christ. So so it's impossible to say something like this. So, you know, I love this part about Jesus forgiving me, erasing my sin, getting me out of hell. But I don't like this part about him changing me and wanting me to get rid of my sin, changing me and making me obey his commands. It's impossible because the Christ who saves us from the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin, also saves us from the corruption of sin. See, Christ doesn't just change our guilty status, our judicial guilty status, but he changes our sinful condition. We can't divide Christ. We either have all of Christ, the Christ who saves and the Christ who sanctifies, or we have none of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you have yet to trust in Christ It's not rocket science. It's as simple as coming before the Savior and and acknowledging your sin, to acknowledge that you're sinful and that you do need a Savior, to humble yourself before him and say, God, I can't save myself. I need you. Please forgive me. I want to live for you. It's as simple as that. And if you have any questions about how to just trust Christ, how to turn your life over to him, feel free to just talk to me or your, the friend who brought you or any of the leaders here, we would love to explain more fully what does it mean to, to follow Jesus. So in light of what Christ has done, the fact that we are united to him by faith, we get the joy of growing up into our, into our union, to, get, to grow into a deeper and fuller and richer understanding of all of who Christ is. So that means 
over time, we are moved by what moves Christ. We serve like Christ served. We love like He served. And we lay down our lives like Christ laid down His life for the church. And that's really what it means when we say Christ is our life. But the problem is that uh, sin still remains in our hearts. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about how he doesn't do the things that he wants, but in fact he does the very thing that he hates because sin dwells within him. And so sin wages a war against our souls. And Paul would say, wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Every sin is a violation of the first commandment, which says you shall have no other gods. And it's easy for our hearts to run after other gods. They're so easy. Could be success, could be comfort, could be respect, position, money, you name it. And these are all blessings that we enjoy. These are gifts that God gives us, but we can love these things so much and desire them so much that they become idols because we want them more than we want God. And so the human heart has been described as an idol factory, an idol factory that continually churns out things, things that we would rather have more than God. But church, we must fight against that. That's why God calls us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. So church, we must put sin to death. We must walk in obedience to our Savior. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us and works, we can and we must work. God's work is the cause and our work is the effect. Sanctification is not an optional duty for a Christian. Romans 8.13 puts it this way. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there's really two options. There's living according to the flesh, giving in to your sinful nature, a pathway that leads to death, or by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, and then you will live. There's two pathways. The Puritan John Owen simplifies it, I think, for all of us. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. What sins do you need to be killing, or they will end up killing you? Maybe it's pride or selfishness. I know it in my own home, conflict often comes because I'm just too self-absorbed with my things, my projects, my own way. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's impurity and pornography. Men, you must be killing lust or it will be killing you. Or maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's anxiety. Just a failure to trust God and cast our lives and our future into his hands. You know your own heart the best. More than that, God knows your heart. God knows each of our hearts. You're not going to hide your sin from him. So don't even try to pretend. 
But isn't it freeing to know that God, who knows everything, who knows all of our sin, who knows the deepest and darkest secrets of our lives, who knows all the ways that we have fallen short, and yet he sent Christ to die for all of those sins so that we could be freed from our guilt and and the stain of our sin could be taken away. That is incredibly freeing, and that should allow us to just run to the Savior and put sin to death and live for him. And not only that... God has given us everything we need. The Holy Spirit is power. He dwells within every believer. He empowers every believer, and he fills us. In fact, there's no sanctification apart from the Spirit. And that's why we as believers, we must be filled with the Spirit every day. We must come before the Lord and ask the Spirit to fill us, to direct us, that we might walk according to the Spirit. And God has given us his word. And what the Holy Spirit does is take God's word and help us to understand it, obey it, and apply it. And that's why the Sunday morning meeting for us as a church is a priority. God has given us the the public ministry of his word as the primary means of our growth. And this is something easy for us to slip, to neglect our public meeting. But nothing is more important than for us as a church to sit at the feet of Jesus, sit under his word, listen to him so that we might obey him. And this context, the preaching of God's word, is where we are grounded in the truth so that we're not tossed to and fro, where we're not carried away by every wind of doctrine. Because sanctification includes the renewal of the mind, to know the truth. So this is where we know God's will. His commands, what sin is, how to turn away from sin. And this is where we are renewed week by week with a, with a vision of the glories of Christ so we can grow up into him who is our, our head. But God hasn't just given us the public ministry of his word. He's given us the private ministry. The righteous man of Psalm chapter 1 is, is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord and finds his delight in the law of the Lord, meditates upon it day and night so he could be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So church, let us not just hear the preaching of the word on Sunday. Let us read and study and apply God's word throughout the week. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, I encourage you to pick one up and work your way faithfully and slowly through God's word. Come talk to me or another leader in the church and we'd be happy to direct you along the right path. We also provide top quality resources in the back of our sanctuary here called the book nook. God would want us to grow in our parenting, to grow in our marriage, to grow in our knowledge of his word and knowledge of doctrine. I want to commend to you an excellent Ephesians commentary back there. Uh, We have an ESV study Bible. These are resources that that are available to you at cost so that you can grow in your knowledge of Christ and be sanctified. We also have private ministry of God's word in one-on-one settings, in smaller groups. Our small group ministry is called community groups, and they meet twice a month. And this is where we encourage one another, where we bear one another's burdens, we pray for one another. This is the context where we get to speak the truth in love to one another. So God has given us the public and private ministry of his word so that we can be built up, so we can grow in our faith. And the result is that we would be sanctified. We would become more and more like Jesus. We would love the Lord our God more and more with all our heart, soul, and mind. So that's what sanctification is. 
But there's also a corporate dimension to our spiritual growth. For us to grow, we must also be serving. Sanctification and service go hand in hand. Maturity for us is not just a me and Jesus kind of thing. It's a us and Jesus kind of thing. Because the scripture says when each part is working properly, then that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we do that by serving one another. The second of the greatest commandments is directly linked to the first one because it's, it, our love for God is expressed through our love for one another, our love for our neighbor. So pastors are given to the church. Look with me to chapter 4, verse 12. So pastors are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They're building up the body of Christ. Pastors equip, but others do the work of ministry. Pastors don't monopolize all the ministry. We don't do all the ministry. We want ministry to be grassroots and organic. There's pastoral care and cover, but no control over ministry unless the health of the flock is at stake, unless there's doctrine at stake. And so I'm, I'm praying that the Lord would raise up individuals who would have a vision for youth ministry or men's ministry or women's ministry. What is the biblical model of the church? Writes commentator John Stott. It's not a pyramid where the pastor is perched on top like the Pope. Say that fast ten times. Not a pyramid where the pastor is perched on top like the Pope. And it's not a bus where the pastor is the driver and the people are the passengers. Stott writes, the church is the body of Christ and every member has a distinctive function. So each person has a unique gift. Each person is unique and valuable in the body of Christ. Imagine a human body without any hands or feet. Imagine, that would be a very disturbing, grotesque image. But also imagine a a human body that was just one eyeball, just one gigantic eye. That would also be very, very disturbing. And so what we learn is that God has given us a body with many different parts, and each part is needed. Each part is valuable. Each part, each part should be esteemed. There are no extra parts. Nothing is expendable. In his commentary in Ephesians, Brian Chappell writes, no one has all the gifts needed for every challenge the church will face. And sometimes we can get tempted to despise the gifts of others or just become proud. Oh, look at me. Look at the gifts I have. Why don't you have that gift? I'm better than you are. Or we could even be tempted to despise our own gifts. Billy Graham once spoke at a college and gave a history lecture. It wasn't appreciated. Later on, his friends told him, God has gifted you to be an evangelist. Never again despise your gift. So don't despise your gift. Don't Don't despise your gift, wanting to be what you're not. If you're a hand, serve as a hand. If you're an ear, serve as an ear. Chapel continues. Jesus has, it's going to be up here in just a second, I think. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. Jesus has dominion over heaven and earth. And thus, he has the authority to dispense gifts here as he wishes, to whom he wishes, and in the proportion he wishes, and the expectation that we will respect his authority. The implication for us is also clear. 
to despise others' gifts, and here I would add even our own gifts, is to disrespect Christ's authority. So at this church, many ministries are needed. They're all valuable. They're all important. In fact, the health of this church depends on every member exercising their gifts faithfully. Most ministries at this church are open to to anyone, but some ministries require specialized training. And membership at Risen Hope Church implies some kind of involvement in a ministry team. This morning, you got on one of your chairs a, uh, a card that lists all the different ministry teams here at Risen Hope Church. The top, you'll see Sunday morning teams. This would be ushers, greeters, parking and facilities, AV, worship team, and also children's ministry. Imagine right now, there's almost 40 children up on our third floor being cared for and taught God's word because there's a small army of faithful volunteers who are serving in our Promised Kingdom children's ministry. Below that, you'll see outreach teams. You'll see support teams. Some of the people here at this church are called to lead as community group leaders, as ministry team leaders, and Lord willing, as deacons soon. And so as you, as you consider what area God would have you to serve in, if you're not serving already, let's remember that what we're a part of is more important than the part we play. What we're a part of is more important than the part we play. Because the church is God's plan to bless the world. How will the world know who Jesus is? How will they hear him? How will they see him? It is through the church. So we get to serve. We get to showcase Christ. We get to make Christ look good through our faithful service. When my wife and I first joined Covenant Fellowship Church, which was our sending campus, when we first joined about six years ago, Teresa and I served in the Promised Kingdom children's ministry. We were in seminary at the time, and we were looking for ways to plug into a local church and serve. Uh, it wasn't an upfront kind of ministry. It was more behind the scenes. One thing that happened, though, that as, as we served, as we gave ourselves to the church, to the life of the local church, uh, we found that the sh- church shrank. Uh, we were connected with people. We began to match up names and faces. We developed new relationships. It was such a blessing for us to just dive in and give ourselves to the ministry of the local church. And so as you consider where the Lord would have you serve, the goal isn't that you would be involved in so many areas that you'd get burned out and overwhelmed. Ministry is, is a us thing. It's, we do it together. We do it as a team. You don't have to do everything in order for the church to survive. There is beauty and strength in diversity. Bananas are a popular cash crop. Uh, in our home, we usually have two or three of three bunches lying around, and we've found them to be a cheap and good fruit. And there are probably about a 1,000 varieties of wild bananas in the world. But 95% of the bananas we eat, if you go to Acme or Giant or Aldi, 95% come from one species, and that's the Cavendish banana. Farmers like the Cavendish banana because it's easy to make money from them. Consumers like them, and plus it's profitable to grow, store, and ship just one kind of banana. Just having that unity across the board makes things really easy for farmers to make money. But a disease that strikes the Cavendish banana has a huge potential to wipe everything out. One disease could reduce the fruit yields by half. There are other diseases that attack 
the roots of these banana plants, and some diseases are impossible to stop. So that's why scientists warn us that the more diversity we have, the less risk we have. And so companies who are harvesting and growing these bananas, they actually, they're, they're faced with a difficult choice. They're faced with uh, investing in diversity, which makes these crops more immune to diseases. So diversity or to continue investing in one kind, which is more profitable, but it makes the bananas more vulnerable. The beauty of the church is that we have both unity and diversity. We have one head, Christ our Lord, but there's many parts in the body. We're not all the same. We're not all identical. We don't all share the same gifts and service. We're not all Cavendish bananas, but we all serve the same Lord. So let's enjoy this diversity because God has created it. So service is a, it's a diverse reality. It's a beautiful reality. But the greatest motivation is for us to serve isn't simply the joy of service, the, the, the diversity, the beauty, but it, it's the reality that it pleases God and honors our Savior when we serve. When we belong to Jesus, we are not our own. We were bought with the price. And so our desire, the desire of every Christian is simply to hear on that final day, well done, good and faithful servant. The New Testament describes disciples as bondservants or slaves. And Paul takes this image and turns it around and, and puts an accent on our redemption. The fact that we have been purchased. You see, we to sin and slaves to the devil, but now we, we, we belong to Jesus. We have a new master. We have a new Lord. So we serve not to be forgiven, but because we have been forgiven. Murray Harris writes, the nature of any slavery is determined by the nature of the master. What all the douloi servants of this curios Lord gained through being associated with him was not so much authority and power as unparalleled honor and the assurance that their service, whatever its nature, was of supreme value simply because it was done for him. In church, that's true whether it's upfront service and in a public way or behind the scenes service where it's done privately. Our service, whatever the nature, has supreme value simply because it's done for him. So we see that God grows us up into a mature faith through our sanctification and our service. And God grows us up to a mature church to become more and more like Jesus and to serve more and more like Jesus. Each of us has a part to play. And through sanctification and through service, we grow up into our head, into Christ. And yet there's a tension in this age, in this life. The church, the body of Christ, is complete, and yet it grows. It's heavenly, but it's also earthly. It's a present reality, but there are still also future promises that await us. God is in the process of a building project, and it's far more glorious than the One World Trade Center, as awesome as that is. It's far more glorious than the Panama Canal expansion. The church, the bride of Christ, is described as a city. But it's a city not filled with crime or slums or poverty. It's the eternal city of God. 
And so, so let's look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 11, as we consider the church, the bride of Christ. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Church, that is where we're headed one day. And when we see that day, when we see the glory of the church, when we see the beauty, the majesty, the reality of being with our Savior forever and ever, that should motivate us on this day towards service and sanctification. Church, let us grow. Let us grow because God is in the process of a building project. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, who can comprehend the great building project that you are in the process of, Lord, the church, the bride of Christ. How can we comprehend the future glory that awaits us? Oh God, give us eyes to see what we are destined for and and let that motivate us today to serve, Lord. Let us motivate that, motivate us today to be more, more and more sanctified, to be more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.